I'm looking forward to getting into this here tonight. Um, it, I, this is a message, um, I don't want to say it's going to be odd. It is going to be different. And I've noticed I've said that for like the past, you know, seven or, seven or eight uh, different sermons that we've had down here. But it's a thought that really hit me about four weeks ago. And um, something that is definitely applicable to young people. It, but I think it's applicable to all of us. And uh, so I just want you to bear with it this evening. Uh, those of you who are book readers, I'm a book reader. I love, uh, I, I, my, I try to read one book a week, one extra book a week outside of my Bible reading. And um, some books are the way they are written, they're, they're, they front load. You know, I mean, when I say front load, you know what I mean? That the bulk of the information for the book uh, is right in the first few chapters. After that, it's not just filler, but it is kind of, it's like, let's put everything in order that we front loaded here. Uh, there's uh, several business books are written like that, and I, I do like them at times. I don't think they're ideal all the time because if you have a front-loaded book uh, and, and within the first three chapters and there's 15 chapters, by the time I get to chapter 12, I'm like, okay, well, we know where this is going. Uh, so hopefully the sermon is not like that tonight. It is a shorter message. Um, but I want to, to, to bring this thought to you. So the bulk of the information tonight is going to be in the front end of the sermon Sermons typically lead to like a climactic type of conclusion, drawing you in with each point, and then boom, the dramatic end comes in, and uh, causing you to make a decision, a decision to accept or reject, apply or deny what was just preached. And that's what I, I do believe in a great way uh, messages should be like that most of the time. But I'm going to do the opposite tonight. I want to give you the end of the story, okay? Uh, we were watching a couple of games yesterday in our rest day, trying to, trying to rest a bit. And uh, for whatever reason, the games are like 30 minutes delayed on the tally. All right, these are American football games. And so my Instagram went off, and I saw the halftime score for a game that was 3 nothing. I'm like, what the world is this, man? You know, and then I'm in the third quarter of another game, and I get the final. Okay, so that was, I was like, well, turn this thing off. I'm just going to go to bed, you know. And, um, but I want to give you the victory on the front end tonight. I want to give, give you the thoughts of where you can be and where you need to be. And two verses we're looking at, we actually looked at five weeks ago, um, is 2 Corinthians 2.14, and then we're going to get into 1 Corinthians 15. But Paul says, but now thanks be unto God, which always causes us to triumph in Christ. This verse and the next verse you're going to see here in a moment has been on my heart for months and months and months and months now. Because I believe in a lot of times, we, we have several people in the world today, uh, in our circles, uh, in churches, that they, they almost live a life that if the more miserable you are, the more spiritual you are. And that is just simply not true. There are so many verses in the Bible that speaks about rejoicing and having joy in the Lord. Rejoice evermore. And again, I say rejoice. You know, you can't reconcile the ideology that I'm going to be miserable makes me more spiritual. And the fact that Paul tells one church 16 times to have joy and to rejoice in our lives. It doesn't factor. And he tells the Corinthian church, and guys, in 2 Corinthians 2.14, the Corinthian church was an absolute mess, okay? Uh, bless their heart, they had a zeal for God, and they were just doing everything in the world wrong. And Paul writes a, a one letter that was considered not inspired to say, look, man, you guys need to kind of kick it in gear. You're doing things that aren't right. Then he has two, two inspired letters to tell them, all right, Slick, this is what we're going to do. Let me get it all corrected for you. We have the formulation for, for missions in there, missions given. We have uh, for a tithe and offering, coming to church on a Sunday, on the first day of the week where that changed. You have uh, the Lord's table, all of these different things, the gifts, the appropriate use of them, and where they don't apply and when they don't apply, and the importance of all these different things, all in First and Second Corinthians. And that's what the, is important to it. 
But within this, I, within this teaching, this rebuke, this correction, this, this local church doctrinal teaching, Paul says that, that Christ always causes us to triumph, that we're winners, that no matter what you're going through, what struggle you may be dealing with, okay, you have the victory in Jesus Christ. He says in the first letter, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he says, but thanks be unto God, which giveth us a victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, for those of you who may not be familiar with 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Corinthians 15 is the chapter where Paul lays out the rapture of the church, the formula, how it happens, the, where the, the dead in Christ shall rise that you read about in 1, Corinthians, or 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. He details that event and how it happens. That those uh, that the corruptible, that means those who are dead in the grave, shall put on incorruption, it means a glorified body. Then he speaks about those who are alive during that period of time. This mortal shall put on immortality. We shall all be changed, all right, in the twinkle of an eye. And that twinkle of an eye is, uh, physicists claim, what that is is the time it takes for light to refract in the eye, all right, which is point one to the 40, negative 43rd power. Yeah, that's pretty quick, you know. That's really, really fast, all right. Saying all that to say this, 1 Corinthians 15 is a very important chapter. And within that chapter, he tells us we have the victory. So that's the front load. That's where I want you to understand. I want you to think about these verses. I want you to write them down. I want you to put them in a notebook in your heart, in your, the light leaf of your Bible. Because when the battle comes, when the temptation occurs in your life, the days are trying. They're dark. They're wet. They're cold. And problems begin to, to, to double down on you. Go to Romans chapter 8, verse 37, where we're always a conqueror. Amen. That we're more than conquerors through him that loved us. And that's the key tonight. There are battles that we are going to have in our life. There are temptations that happen in the darkness behind closed doors. That you still can have the victory through Jesus Christ. You can still be the conqueror through Jesus Christ. But you're going to have to choose that. Amen. You're going to have to choose it. So I want to bring the rest of the story to your heart. It's going to be out of the Old Testament tonight. I think we can all probably empathize and understand with the character we're going to be speaking about but i want to give you a warning a warning in four words don't be a statistic don't be a statistic you know a statistics guys i'm a data junkie i like that the word statistic is the science concerned with developing and studying methods of collecting analyzing uh, interpreting and presenting empirical data that's what a statistic is Within this data, there are a litany of numbers, all of which have a certain criteria, some positive, some negative. All depends on what the category is of the researcher, what he's trying to find, what he's trying to collect, or what she's trying to, to, to you know, find a number to represent someone or something that falls into a certain data set. That's all a statistic is. I love statistics in, in uni. I had to take behavioral statistics, which most of you guys have probably seen my handwriting it's to figure it out it's like trying to figure out hieroglyphics sometimes um and but we, i would have pages i'd have six seven eight pages of of problems working out and if one number was off if an eight looked like a nine or an eight like or seven looked like a six which believe you me in my handwriting sometimes it does and uh you, you know the whole problem would be off one number wrong that's how important those numbers are but when you look at a statistic they are made up of numbers that are seemingly insignificant. They just meet a certain criteria, a certain data set. And I'm asking you tonight to not become a statistic. Something very simple. I want to go to Genesis chapter 13 tonight. I hope that you can read this well enough on the screen. It looks like that you can. Genesis 13, we have quite a, few re uh, quite a few verses to read in the front end, but then we'll get into the message tonight. The Bible says, And Lot also, which um, went from, with Abram, had flocks and herds and tents, 
And the lamb was not able to bear them that they might dwell together, for their substance was great, so that they could not dwell together. Verse 7. And there was a strife between uh, the hermit of Abram's cattle and the hermit of Lot's cattle. And the Canaanite and the Pezrite dwelled then in the land. And Abram said unto Lot, Let there be no strife, I pray thee, between me and thee, and between my hermit and thy hermit, for we be brethren. Is not the whole land before thee? Separate thyself, I pray thee, from me. If thou wilt take to the left hand, then I will go to the right. If thou departest to the right hand, then I will go to the left. He says in verse 10, And Lot lifted up his eyes and beheld all the plain of Jordan. And it was well watered everywhere before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, even as the garden of the Lord. Now I want you to stop there for just a second. The inspired word of God, given by God himself, is telling us that the, the plain of Jordan is comparative to the Garden of Eden. Now, he's not saying it is the Garden of Eden, but the beauty of it. Man, my soul. So this is where he looks. Verse 11. Then Lot chose, uh, chose him all the plain of Jordan, and Lot journeyed east, and they separated themselves, uh, the one from the other. Abram dwelled in the land of Canaan, and Lot dwelled in the cities of the plain, and pitched his tent toward Sodom. But the men of Sodom were wicked, and sinners before the Lord exceedingly. Now, again, I'm talking about front-loading tonight. So get the idea that happens. You know, first, give you just a little bit of a backstory, and I won't take I won't take much time on this. Lot should have never been there in the first place. God told Abram, "Get out of the land, get away from your family, leave, uh, leave Har- leave Haran, Le- get out of here right now." And he left, and he took his nephew with him. Okay, and it, really and truly, none, nothing worked out well for Lot. We're going to see that here in just a second. Not only was he taken captive, but we'll see whatever. I mean, just the, the poor guy's life just ended up being a, a total wreck. And there's a reason behind that. Ultimately, that reason was, I hate to say it, Abram dragged him with him. And he, they bo- all, both of them came very wealthy, all right? So I just want you to understand that, that yeah, you're going to see some things that happens to Lot, why it happens to Lot, why it can and will happen to us in the same manner. But at the end of the day, there was a disobedience from someone else that got him into that situation. So some may be familiar with the events of Abraham and Lot's lives. Others may not be. But to sum the whole thing up in, in the spirit of, of, um, of front-loading, I want to go to the end of Lot's life, really the last time that we hear much about him. In Genesis 19.30, says, And Lot went up out of Zoar and dwelt in the mountain, and his two daughters with him, for he feared to dwell in Zoar, and he dwelt in a cave, he and his two daughters. That's the end of his life. Now, those of you who are not familiar with how his life really ends, Lot became drunk. His daughters got him drunk. His, these two final daughters that he had were virgin. They were not going to be able to continue the seed. And the sin of incest was began in the cave of Zoar. All right? The product of that sinful vile relationship of which Lot was, was drunk at the time, his daughters got him drunk to do this, produced two groups of people, one boy named Moab and another boy named Ammon. Those two people became perpetual enemies of the children of God. Perpetual, as a matter of fact, Moab is a picture of the flesh. Um, and, and again, that's another story for another time. This is the end of Lot's life. He lost at least two daughters in the destruction of Sodom. At least two sons in the destruction of Sodom, two sons-in-laws, okay, and his wife. And was only left with his two daughters, his, I'm assuming his youngest, and 
produced this perpetual enemies of Israel years, hundreds of years later. What a tragic, horrible end of a man who at one time had great substance. Lot had it going on, man. I mean, the reason they had to separate a lot in Abraham was because the land, as great as it was, could not manage both of them and their animals. It could not produce enough food, you know, in that area. And, he, and Abraham said, look, you go to the left, I go to the right, you go to the right, I go to the left, wherever. You choose, and I'll do the opposite. And now he's in a cave, defeated, debased, drunken, living a terrible life. So how, how did this happen? I want to show you something here. It all started with a pause. A pause, right? In verse 10, the Bible says, And Lot lifted up his eyes and beheld all the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere. Before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, even as the garden of, of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, as thou comest out of Zoar. He lifted up his eyes. Beloved, there's a power of the pause. It's more dangerous than one can ever imagine. And some of you are thinking, in the world are you talking about? I'm going to get to it. Mainly because we think we're strong. We think we can pause for a second in our life. We think that we're greater than Lot. I'll, I'll put it in very plain terms. The Bible says that David is a man after God's own heart, didn't it? David was a mighty warrior king. As a matter of fact, David was not allowed to build the temple because he was a man of war. He was a man of blood. And yet his son Solomon, who was a man of wisdom in a time of peace, was allowed to build the temple of God. David was a good man. David messed up. Yes, he did. David had three major sins that we find in, in the Bible. You know, aren't you glad that ours aren't recorded for everybody on the planet to read? Amen? Amen? So <laughs> but there was a time in the year when David was supposed to go to battle. It was a time of the year when kings were to go to battle. And the Bible says, but David tarried in Jerusalem. And he gets up in the middle of the night. He walks out on his balcony. And lo and behold, you guys know the rest of the story. Bathsheba's down there taking a bath. And he pauses. Lot was given the opportunity. You go to the left, you go to the right. And Lot lifted up his eyes. And he paused upon the beauty of the plain of Jordan. You know what the pause is. Sometimes the pauses catch us on this. We're scrolling. You know what a pause is. Pause can be anything, guys. And a pause is whatever causes your mind to drift away from the decision you made for Jesus Christ, the one that you have the victory in, the one that you have the triumph in, luring you into a place where a seed can be planted. There is power in the pause. Do you know teenagers spend, ages 13 to 18, they spend seven hours and 22 minutes of screen time a day? That's a work day. Seven hours, 22 minutes. The average uh, a human today, and this is adults, the average adults check their phone 96 times per day or once every 12 minutes. We actually touch our phones up to 2,617 times per day, and we unlock our phones 150 times on average. Now we're talking about statistics, aren't we? How do we know we have those numbers? 
Well, the same way when you mention a pair of shoes you like, and then all of a sudden it pops up on your Instagram feed. Amen? <laughs> I was looking for a digital planner. I've been looking for a, 2000, uh, for a 2024 calendar, a diary, uh, for six months now because I like to plan and book out for the next year about halfway through. And I haven't found one that I'm happy with at all. So I wanted to find a digital planner. So I was like, oh, okay, fine, I'll do that. I finally find it. I get the iPad. I do this and that. I'm digging and searching for what I needed, right? And now all of a sudden, every Instagram ad that I have is a digital planner popping there. I was like, well, that would have been nice. That would have been nice. That would have been nice. They know what you're doing, guys. I mean, we can't be so foolish to not understand that. It's not conspiratorial, you guys. That's just facts. The pause starts with the checking. It starts with the scrolling. It starts with the, look, the looking. It's not just the amount of, the, uh, say, the enormous amount of time. The pause in our life, it begins with our eyes. In Lot's life, the pause resulted in a pitch. Now, that pitch means it's a direction. He pitched his tent towards Sodom. Verse 11 says, Then Lot chose him all the plain of Jordan, and Lot journeyed east, and they separated themselves, the one from the other. Abram dwelt in the land of Canaan, and Lot dwelt in the cities of the plain, and pitched his tent towards Sodom. We always, you always hear about Sodom and Gomorrah, but there was a multitude of these cities. You know, the, the place where the Dead Sea is located now is where Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities of the plain were located, okay? The fire and brimstone that rained down to destroy these cities is what produced the Dead Sea, which the Jordan River uh, dumps into, and nothing lives there. We've been there. Uh, believe you, if I can float in water, uh, it's one molecule away from being a solid, okay? That's what they say. The funniest thing in the world. But he pitched his tent. Sodom was a wicked city. We all know what happened there. It's open wickedness, open, open lewdness, all of the things that happened. But it wasn't just that. Sodom was not just a city. Uh, I, I say often sometimes, it's not just New Orleans. That's not what it was. It was also a, a city of major commerce. Loads, it was a very wealthy city. It was a very, it, I mean, there was merchant, merchants coming in and out of Sodom and Gomorrah all throughout the time. That's, so it's, you know, the thing is, all the wickedness, Lot saw with his eyes, but you know what he also saw? He saw the beauty of that plain. He saw the flowing of that water. He saw the glistening of all the commerce and the money that was being made there. That's what he saw. He was well aware of the wickedness. But when he looked at the cities of the plain, he paused. He paused at this one particular city, and that pause was the bayou. It was his eyes which saw the the bait, causing him to pitch his tent toward the city. So he was yet... To move his family there. He just pitched his tent there. We know the end of the story. Dude ends up in a cave with his two daughters. Lost his wife. But he sat there and watched the actions of the city. The pause turned into a, a pitching of a tent, a planting, if you will. And, and guys, we live in a world today where Unregulated accessibility to content across the globe has brought even the strongest of men and women to their knees. We already know the outcome of Lot's family. And yes, guys, we know his end. We know his, where his legacy will lead. But the power of the pause this evening caused him to pitch. And here's where the problem really lies. And this will be the final point. It also made him ponder. What did he ponder? Verse 13 in chapter 13 says that the men of, of Sodom were wicked sinners before the Lord. The Bible says exceedingly. Lot knew the wickedness that occurred there. 
Lot was well aware of all the problems, of all the issues. He was well aware of everything that was happening. I mean, you know, he was privy to their sin. He, he, he would eventually uh, bring destruction to hundreds of thousands of people in that area. But yet Lot pondered the very thing. He weighed the outcome in his mind. He saw their wickedness as well as the, the well-watered land, the lush grass, uh, the, the enemies of God. He saw all of those things. And you know what Lot said? I'll be okay. I'm strong enough. I can handle it. I used to tell my dad my, when I was in uni, you know, dad would would be kind of grilling me about things. I said, dad, it, it's all under control. Boy, he hated that because it wasn't under control. I knew, <laughs> and he knew that. I said, dad, it's all under control. No, it wasn't. And he, and he couldn't stand me saying that. But that's what Lot was saying. I'm good. I can, I can handle this. I can go in there and I can reap the benefits and I can not be affected by what goes on. I can get away with it. Genesis 19, verses one, verse 1 says, And there came two angels of Sodom at even, and Lot sat in the gate of Sodom. Now get this idea. It all started with him pausing. And then it went for him pitching the tent. Now he's pondering. And now we find that he's moved his entire family into the city, and he has sat in the gate. And you say, well, what does that mean? In these days and in this culture, the men who sat in the gate were those who had a standing in this city. They had a position, like a governor, a mayor, or they, had, they were a representative of that place. He was one of them. He was working with them. He was becoming wealthy. He was benefiting from all these things. And the whole time he's saying, I'm okay, nothing's going to hurt me. At the end of the story, we've already seen it. Family destroyed. Wealth lost. As a matter of fact, when when the Lord Jesus Christ and the two angels appear unto Abraham in the, in the plains of Mamre, and they tell him, they said, we're going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham was like, Abraham already saved Lot one time when he was taken captive in the midst of battle, all right? He saved all the, you know, the, everything from the people in Sodom. He, he already saved him once. Lot goes, Lot goes right back in there, assumes his position and do this and that. So the Lord comes and says, this is what's going to happen. Abraham says, peradventure, there's 50 righteous. Will you destroy 50 righteous? The Lord said, okay, fine. If there's 50 righteous there, I'll repent. I won't, I won't destroy the city. Abraham says, ah, okay, 45. Now he's bargaining with the Lord, okay? He's doing the math in his head as if God didn't know what he was you know, talking about. Okay, 45. Peradventure, 40. Lot's like, hang on, I better hurry this thing up. He's going to get tired of me. How about 30? How about 20? And every, got all the way down to 10. Lot's, and Abraham's like, I got him. The Lord said, yeah, peradventure. If there's 10 righteous, I'll spare the city. Hundreds of thousands of lives will be spared if I can find 10 righteous. Abraham's like, Whew, you got it. Because he thought, Lot, Lot's wife, his two virgin daughters, his two married daughters, his sons and his two sons-in-law. We got him, man. Somewhere in between 10 and 20, we got him. Here it is. They're all spared. By the time those two angels arrive, there's four people in the household. And the Bible tells us that the men that tried to come and take the angels to have their way with them, Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law in the crowd and his sons. They were part of it. Only four in their family. And we know that Abraham's, or sorry, Lot's wife turned back to Sodom. And listen, she was living in the lap of luxury. She turned back, turned into a pillar of salt. Three people left. 
Why am I saying this? Lot became a statistic, a very big statistic at that. Lot became someone that we know today that the Bible tells us in Hebrews that he vexed, vexed his righteous soul with their livelihood day after day after day. Yet he was just living it up, thinking I'm okay. His legacy was ruined. His wealth was lost. He was defeated, and Lot became a statistic. You know, one study showed us that 21% of their parents say their relationship with their child was negatively affected by seeing their kids in compromising situations on social media. And more than 20% of parents say their relationship with their child was damaged after the child saw something compromising on their parents' social media feed. 16% of people say their, their relationship with their partner was damaged by compromising posts on social media. Research has found that 31% of people who admit they communicate less with their parents because of social media, while 33% communicate less with their children, 23% with their partners, and 35% with their friends, all less. I read one study that found that people who do not use social media are 11% happier in their marriages than people who regularly use social media. Social media was responsible for most of the cheating in marriages nowadays. See, I'm one of the, I, I'm, I'm old enough to remember before we had all this. And I'll go ahead and tell you, I was the guy preaching against Facebook. And one of the reasons why, within the first three years of its conception and popularity, the majority of my marriage counseling was strictly because of Facebook. Now, I believe everything, we're on Facebook right now. <laughs> you know, everything can be used for good and everything can be used for bad. But statistics today show that one out of five divorces are caused by the use of Facebook. Now, I wrote, I, I looked up this next statistic before I knew what this thing was. I thought it was something else. But 30% of Tinder users Y'all know what a tender is? Okay. Uh huh, caught you. That was it. No, I'm just kidding. I thought it was something else. And But 30% of tender users are married. Now, it's a dating site, right? I am right about that. It's not like a bad, I mean, it's bad, but it's not like, I'll move on. Well, it turns out I found out somebody else found their husband and wife on there, too. So I thought it would, anyway, I'm going to go on. Move on. 10% of adults who have admitted to, 10% uh, uh, of adults have admitted to hiding their social media messages and posts from their pastor, partner. Again, I say this personally over the last 20 plus years, I have counted, counseled hundreds of people whose relationship troubles began because of social media. Now, I understand it's an individual choice and it's an individual, you're responsible. It can be whether it's a bar or whether it's a, a tender, whether it's a, what, you're responsible for your actions no matter where it is. I get that. But we're in a world today of unregulated access. We're in a world today to where, guys, look, you know, seconds after the floods in New York City, we're finding out about it. The water hadn't even risen that high. And news, everything, we are just inundated by information today. And it affects us. It affects our mind, our heart. It affects us just like Lot was affected when he paused, when he pitched, and then when he pondered. The end result was absolute disaster. And that's what it starts with. It's a simple message tonight, guys. It's something that I'm trying to throw out to each one of us to not become a statistic. We remember the verse that we opened up with. Now, thanks be unto God, which 
always. Now, guys, I am a Bible believer to the core. And if the Bible says always, guess what? That means always. It doesn't mean 99.9% of the time, always. But we have to choose it. I want to be a winner. I want to have victory over all of this. I, I set rules and boundaries in my life when it comes to those things. One of those rules and boundaries, when we, when we get ready to go to bed at night, the moment she comes in and she sits on the other side and she's getting ready to go to bed, my phone's down if I even have it up. And I use my phone to have a, uh, like this sleep noise. I like the thunder and rain. And so I put that on so that I can help me sleep. I set that thing up. I'm done and dusted. I tell all my kids good night. I love you. Uh, be it, you know, because obviously the other ones, I'm, I'm texting it to them. Bailey's in the house. I do that every single night. I never miss that. And, but once it's bedtime, phone down. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to sit there and be in another world while my wife is sat next to me in another world. You, know, you see what I'm saying? Those are boundaries. Those are little things that we can do in our life to avoid from becoming to be a statistic. Guys, why? Because Christ always causes us to triumph. We have the victory in him. That was the front load of the message tonight. And this is something very simple, I believe, in all of my heart and my mind. I believe this message is simple. And I believe, yes, it's probably intended for maybe a, a younger generation, but it's really not. Do you know what the average age of the average, the, of the average video gamer online who spends over 10 hours a day playing videos, do you know what the average age is? 38 years old. That's the average. That's the median age. So if it's 38... I mean, that's a whole lot of 40- and 50-year-olds playing games. Now, why, they're online, they're, and they're online the majority of the time of their day. We think it's just kids. Adults spend more time on the computer than teenagers do. Obviously, I know they're on their phones, on their mobile devices. I get that. And this is not just about mobile devices, guys. It's not just about social media. It's not even a message against social media. What it's a message about tonight is that you and I have the victory. Let's proclaim it. Let's let's claim the victory in our life to avoid, man, becoming a statistic. One of the worst things that can happen in a relationship is for it to become stale and complacent. And then that side door, that pause, that pitching, and that pondering lure that person in to find something else somewhere. Guys, don't become a statistic. Let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, for who and what you are, for all that you've done. We thank you for the time together this evening. I pray you bless our closing song. Uh, Lord, I pray you take the message right upon our heart. Again, very simplistic this evening. I hope and pray that it be a blessing to every soul, every person tonight. And Lord, we give you honor, glory, and praise for everything that is said and done. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen and amen.